Right on. The common thread of that song and uh, the scripture readings that we're sharing this morning is simply this. Look up, because God has a Savior for us. God has some saving to do if you look up. Now, as a way of practicing, the highest thing in this room is a cross. It's draped in purple this morning. If you use your neck muscles for just a minute, open your eyeballs wide, uh, give it a good long look. This is going to be the long-term invitation for you. Look up. Look up or look out is what God's word says this morning. Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 21. The book of Numbers does not sound exciting, like it's full of numbers. There are some crazy stories in the book of Numbers, and this morning's reading is one of the wildest, and that's saying something with the Old Testament. God's word says this. As they, the people of God, the Israelites, traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, they were 40 years wandering in the desert, but the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, and if you would be the voice of the people, and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. You guys are super grumpy having lost an hour of sleep last night. Wow. God's people are super grumpy after years and years in the desert. Uh, I was looking for a word strong enough. Like complaining is not strong enough. Grumbling is not strong enough. Given what they said, maybe belly aching. You know, profound belly aching. Now, in the Bible, it is fair game to ask God all kinds of hard questions. It is fair game to wonder in God's direction, right? If you read the book of Psalms, all kinds of difficult... How long do we have to stay in the desert, God? When are you going to rescue us? When is there going to be something different to eat? All of that, 100% fair. But in this passage, it ratchets up a notch. They're not just wondering and asking hard questions. They are speaking out against God and against that idiot Moses, their leader. God cares for his people too much to leave them in this posture of just looking down at their feet and thinking it's just the worst and nothing's ever going to change and speaking out against him, the one who loves them so much. God takes extreme measures in this story. Here's what happens. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. I told you this was a wild story. And they bit the people and many Israelites died. And then the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. How quickly we change our tune, right? When it, comes, when it goes from things that are annoying, a bunch of bad food, too long in the desert, to real matters of life and death. I mean, people are actually dying here, and suddenly Moses moves from an idiot to the one who can pray for them. And God moves from the one who's causing them pain to the one who can actually make a difference and rescue them. How about that? 
So notice that the Bible does not describe these snakes in the desert as just a natural phenomenon. Of course, they're in the desert, it's dry, there's lots of snakes, that's true. But these are specifically sent to help wake God's people up and to stop their speaking out against God. And this snake pit, this plague of snakes, indeed has God's intended effect. The people wake up from their belly aching. They look at Moses as someone who can help them and look to God as the one to whom they ought to pray and look for salvation. The story gets even more curious at this point, if that's possible. Here's how God answers their prayers. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at that and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and simply looked at the bronze snake, they lived. What? So there's this pit full of snakes. People are getting bit. And God sends an antidote, an anti-venom serum, as it were. A bronze snake on a pole. Just look at it and you will live. Now, I have a question-asking, skeptical kind of mind, okay? If I was an ancient Israelite more than 3,000 years ago, I would be like, come on, that can't work, right? We know that can't work, right, guys? And then if it would come time for me to get bitten by a snake, I would be the first one in line, just elbowing people out of the way. Where's that snake on the pole? Because it actually worked, The Bible doesn't say how it worked. The Bible kind of says why it worked, because this was God's chosen method of bringing healing to his people. It's about as weird a rescue as there is in the Bible. Is that fair? It's just weird, but there it is. It is not the snake itself. Please notice this. It is not the snake itself that is able to heal anyone. It is God's power, and God mysteriously chooses to let his power flow through eye contact with this bronze snake. Again, it's wild, but I'm just a guy. Who am I to question God about this? God's power flows through this snake. This is always how it is, and we human beings uh, very quickly fall in love uh, with the means of God's rescuing. It is God, okay? God is the one who saves and rescues through setting your eyes on the snake. Hundreds of years later in Israel's history, this very bronze serpent shows up one more time in the Old Testament. This is like 600 years later, the other time it shows up. It is in Jerusalem, the capital city at that point, 600 years later, and it is being prayed to and worshiped by God's people, the Israelites, all these hundreds and hundreds of years later. What? But can you see how that would happen? It's like the people went from God is rescuing us through providing this means of rescue to we should worship this bronze snake because it's totally good luck. You hear what I'm saying? This is obviously in God's economy things an impossibility. The second commandment, Thou shalt make no graven image of the Lord your God of something in heaven above or the earth below. Like, you're not supposed to represent God or pray to something as if it were God. 
totally off limits, and yet this is exactly what God's people do for hundreds of years. In 2 Kings chapter 18, there's this other mention of the snake. After a few hundred years, it's actually acquired its own name, which is Nehushtan. Isn't that a great slimy, serpenty, snaky name? I know snakes aren't slimy, but Nehushtan. It sounds like a snake. There was a king of Judah who tried to clean house and stop God's people from looking down and ignoring God. Here's what this good king Hezekiah did. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed all the high places, idols, smashed the sacred stones, idols and good luck charms, cut down the Asherah pole, fertility cult, idols, and he broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made for up to that time, Israelites had been burning incense to it, praying, worshiping. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after him. This was a good guy because he got God's people from ignoring God to looking back up at God. Now, from the Old Testament to the New Testament reading today, there is a very strong connection which is made by Jesus himself. In John chapter 3, in the murkiness of the middle of the night, a man named Nicodemus, one of the leaders, religious leaders of Jewish folks at that point, comes to Jesus and he is full of wondering and questions. And in the murkiness of the middle of the night, they talk about such things as the work of the Holy Spirit and how nobody can pin down the Holy Spirit because who knows which way the wind blows. And they talk about what it could possibly mean to be born again. And Nicodemus really has no idea at this point what this young rabbi is talking about. And then in the middle of this midnight conversation, Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That first part never makes it on the t-shirts or the bumper stickers, does it? Just because it's so weird. But Jesus brings this up. Jesus makes a connection between this story in Numbers 21 and his own work as the Messiah. Jesus compares himself directly with old Nehushtan, the snake. I had a professor once who said, who would refer to Jesus as the snake Jesus, which is quite a bit different than saying that snake Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Jesus the snake? Yeah, good. That snake, Jesus, bad. Snakes have never been, as far as I can tell, thought of warmly from Indiana Jones all the way back to the ancient world. <laughs> they just, for most of us, creep us out a little bit. The first time a snake appears in the Bible, it's when people fall into sin. Remember what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Satan comes to tempt our original parents. He takes on the form of a cunning serpent, and he shares lies, which we all fall for. The lie is simply this. If you eat of the tree in the center of the garden, which God told you, just don't do that one thing, here's what will happen for you. 
your eyes will be opened. You will never die, and you'll become like God. Total lies, right? Jesus, in a way, in saying he is like this bronze serpent lifted up in the desert, is reversing what happened all the way back there in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is saying, you know what, all those original lies... I can overturn those and make these come true. Because if you lift up your eyes and see God's new sign of salvation, which is going to be lifted on a cross rather than on a bronze pole, if you lift up your eyes, you know what will happen? You will never die. You'll have eternal life. Indeed, if you look up, your eyes will be opened and you will see what's what, both in terms of yourself and who God is. In Jesus the snake, all the original curses from Satan the snake are totally overturned. The cross, Jesus is saying, points to God's life-giving power. Now there's a difference. In Numbers 21, all the Israelites had to do at that point was just fix their eyeballs on the pole and they were healed. Jesus is saying this, you need to behold the Son of God on the cross and you need to believe. It's not enough just to set your eyes on it and see it. Something needs to shift. And if you really behold it for what it is, you don't have to try to believe. You will believe. You will behold and believe. In the New Testament, for sure Jesus is lifted up on the cross. And in the Gospel of John, he is lifted up from the grave in the power of real life. And the same word in the Gospel of John, he, in the writings of John, he is lifted up to the right hand of God. Up, up, up. For God so loved the world, or the cosmos. In the Gospel of John, John does not mean the cosmos in terms of what NASA explores or what Greenpeace and the Audubon Society tried to protect. Those are super important and high on God's agenda. But cosmos in the Gospel of John means the entire human race, which because of contamination with sin, is looking down instead of looking up. He uses the word more than 70 times in the Gospel of John, cosmos. Always human beings not paying attention to God, sinful human beings. For God so loved Every kid, every woman, every man that he gave his one and only son. Now, if we look at just these two verses, there are some remarkable parallels, okay? And in this conversation with Nicodemus, uh, it's kind of hard to tell where the voice of Jesus stops and where the voice of John the disciple starts, Okay, there were not red letters in the original Greek edition. And if you get a red letter Bible out and compare it to another red letter Bible, the letters will actually stop at different verses because it's really hard to tell when Jesus stops and John starts. In original Greek, there's no quotation marks. There are no periods. There are no question marks. There are no exclamation points. There are no periods or commas. So you have to use the context to tell. Here's what I think is going on here. Jesus himself says to Nicodemus, 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus rarely, if ever, repeats himself. Jesus is a Jewish prophet. He often will, for poetic reasons, kind of say things similar one right after another to heighten the meaning. Jesus pretty much never repeats himself. John, the gospel writer, pretty much repeats what Jesus just said in his conversation with Nicodemus. The words and phrases that are in red and blue and green on the screens right now are verbatim the identical Greek words and phrases. It's as if Jesus says this to Nicodemus and then John is so concerned that we all get this that he rephrases it to give it to the church. And he did a pretty good job, right? Because what John gave the church at that point is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but would have eternal life. Amen to that. When I memorized this as a kid, the verse finished that whosoever should believe in him might not perish but may have, I got it wrong, everlasting life. Anybody old enough to have memorized the King James? Ended with everlasting life versus eternal life? There is a significant difference, and the new translation is much better. If something is everlasting, that just simply gets at how long it endures for, right? It's about time, like a stick of big red gum. It is nearly everlasting. Come on, people. All right. So everlasting life in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, think of it. Like, there's a mythology about ghosts or specters or poltergeists. They have everlasting life, and it is the stuff of horror stories rather than the stuff of heaven. If you believe in karma and the great wheel of life, that is not a pleasant thing. It is everlasting. You can't get off the cycle. It's a curse. That is not the kind of life that Jesus promises, simply everlasting life. Jesus is promising for those who look up and behold and believe in the Son of Man. He is promising you, friend, eternal life. What's the difference? Life that is eternal is strong, certainly enduring and everlasting. Yes, it is noble. It is pure. It stays Standing when people mock it or kick it or try to take it down. It is loyal. It is faithful. It is good. I'm almost reciting the cadet pledge here. All of those things are of the eternal nature of life. And that is the kind of life that Jesus, even right now, is promising to give birth to in your heart. Not just that it's going to last a really long time, but an eternal quality to it. My, my, my. This passage ends this way. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Again, my question-asking brain, kind of as an American, wants to say, really? Because word is on the street that condemnation is about the favorite thing on most Christians' list. 
Do you know, do you recognize that, that this is how we are known to our wider culture as people who are full of judgment and condemnation? How does that feel? Especially since Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. We might have something to learn right here. Sometimes we, as the church, the family of God, sometimes we can give off the impression that before an outsider can fit in to a church or a Christian organization, that you pretty much need to totally clean up your act and act like one of us before you should even try to fit in. We give off that impression. It is not a good impression. It's not a true impression. It's not a faithful to Scripture impression. What if we found a way, as God's family, to emphasize that all you need to do to belong, and there's a big difference between fitting in and belonging, okay? All you need to do to belong is simply take the first step that all of us who are trying to follow Jesus take, which is to recognize that there is something fundamentally and seriously wrong with all of us. Welcome. You belong. There's something wrong with you. That is step one. Did you get this from the Numbers 21 story? I mean, the people are bellyaching at God, and it's not until there is a snake pit that they recognize something is actually wrong and turn their attention to God. It is a prerequisite for us to turn our attention to God to recognize that there is something wrong with us. What if we Christians were the first one in line to recognize that about ourselves and our churches and our organizations. Wouldn't that be something? That is not the message the world is getting. There's an author by the name of Donald Miller, and uh, about 10 years ago, he did a little social experiment at a university in Portland, Oregon, which is hardly the bastion of Christendom these days. Okay, Portland, Oregon. He and some college students set up a confession booth on campus, like right in the middle of campus. It was not the kind of confession booth where sinners go to confess their sins. It was the kind of confession booth that when random people would walk up to it, the Christians who were sitting at the booth would confess their sins and the sins of the church to whoever randomly came by. You get what I'm saying here? It was a reverse confession booth, okay? This, on a secular Portland campus, really caught people's attention. Because folks have not experienced the body of Christ saying humble things about themselves, saying we have something to learn. We come off as the Bible answer crowd. What if we found a way to represent the gospel by leading, not with our having our act togetherness, but with our need for God, our need to look up? That might make a difference. A couple weeks ago in a sermon, I told a story about how I was really an idiot kid as a baseball pitcher. like to show off. Uh, this is part of uh, my bigger bad quality of generally being a know-it-all. Okay? This is my confession to you. <laughs> it's what I lead with in talking about the gospel. Like, I am by nature uh, a know-it-all. And who likes to be around a know-it-all? Really? You should be nodding right now, like, get me out of here. You're totally right. 
So here's the thing. Because God has been involved in my life, and because Jesus has been involved in my life, even as a young person, God gave me some early clues about how he might be rescuing me from my know-it-all-ness. I was attracted to church and ministry, quite frankly, as part of my own rescuing and salvation story. If I had just stayed in music, and that was kind of what I thought was my desire, if I had just stayed in music, I would be the world's worst know-it-all. Like, God has been saving me by working for a church, and here's what I mean. Like, as someone who shares regular teaching and preaching, if you've ever heard a 100% pure know-it-all sermon... Like, they're the worst. Like, if it's just a person talking about what they find curious, uh, what they know, dropping their favorite trivial pursuit facts on you, like, no way. That's how I started. Just by doing that kind of nonsense. And other people loved me enough to help me see that, you know what a good sermon actually is? It's not sharing the stuff that you have crammed up in your head It's finding a way to humbly stand on the word of God and build a bridge between what's in the pages of scripture and this modern crazy world we live in. Like, can you feel the difference between those two things? They are such different things. I'm not doing this perfectly for you. Thank you for being flexible with me. But it gives me such great pleasure to stand on the word of God. It takes the pressure off my shoulders. I don't have to make up stuff. I just have to read the newspaper and read the scripture and try to cram them together. Like, that's what a real sermon is. Okay, so God has been slowly saving me through serving the church. I would simply hold the question before you, in the stuff of your life, as you are walking with Jesus, if you have been for a while, can you see at this point in life what your fatal flaw is, was, and shall be? And can you recognize that in the very course of your life, God is seeking to heal you and redeem you and make you holy. Here's how awesome God is. God is not just with a magic eraser saying, you know all this stuff that was wrong with you by nature and your bad habits? We're just going to erase that. That is not what God does. He is not content to leave it at just erasure. God is so good that he wants to take your sinful qualities and crazy business and use it and transform it into the stuff of life and quite possibly the things that will be best about you. Not just erasing it, but redeeming and transforming it. This is how it worked in the desert, okay? The very thing that was killing God's people, the snakes, became the sign that saved them. Here's how it works with Jesus. Even though he's the perfect person, he bears the full weight of sin on the cross. And by looking at death and sin, by beholding our death and sin being put to death, we are saved. Your personal sin, when it is lifted up, either through good self-awareness or just humiliation. When your sin is lifted up and you behold it for what it really is, that is when God can really work on the deeper parts of you and get down to an eternal saving of you, not just wiping away your guilt and shame, but saving you. 
It works like this with the chicken pox, right? If you get inoculated, you take some of the chicken pox in your veins, and then hopefully you're saved from suffering a horrible case of the chicken pox when you're an adolescent. It works like this with death. You take some death into your veins by beholding Jesus on the cross, and real life comes onto your shoulders as a result. Mm-hmm. This guy, Nicodemus, who came in the middle of the night to talk to Jesus. Do you know what became of him? Do you wonder if he took Jesus' words to heart? Like, did he really get it? Jesus made this connection about himself being lifted up. Nicodemus appears one other time in the Gospel of John, and apparently he got the message because he was there in real time when Jesus was on the cross. John chapter 19 says this, Joseph, being Joseph of Arimathea, was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, and Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth, and taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Nicodemus wasn't just theologically curious. Nicodemus was there at the foot of the cross. He walked every step of the way with Jesus. And when Jesus' 12 closest disciples uh, had either betrayed him or fled or found it hard to be close in this darkest hour, Nicodemus himself was there to receive the temporarily dead body of the Lord and care for it. Nicodemus walked every step of the way. So in the season of Lent, um, it is drawing to a close in just a couple weeks. It will be Holy Week. And in uh, the life and times of schools here in the western suburbs, uh, Holy Week coincides perfectly with spring breaks this year. That's great. I am not going to try to talk anybody out of going to Florida or like whatever fun thing you and your family might be planning on. I do want to offer an invitation to you, however, which is of all the steps along the way to open yourself to what Nicodemus did and to walk the final steps with Jesus to the cross and to the grave because it is as we look up and behold him that we believe and are saved. The stakes could not be higher on this. Like, it is a matter of life and death, friends. One thing you can do if you are in the area, uh, on Monday, Thursday, we have three short 20-minute services. They're all the same. To come by and hear that part of the gospel story, you're invited. On Good Friday in the p.m., There's a 7 o'clock service here. The light slowly goes out of the room. By the time the service is over, uh, Jesus has died and we leave this place in silence. It's part of the story. And then we get together on Easter Sunday morning and worship like all get out. If you're here, to walk those three steps will help you behold and believe. If you're in another place, Maybe there is another congregation that worships on some of these times. It would be so good for you 
to go worship with other believers, whatever part of the country or other country you might be in, okay? If you are in a place where there is no church, and there's always a church somewhere, but if you don't want to leave your hotel, uh, we are going to offer uh, via our website a, a way to walk every day of Holy Week with a little scripture reading and meditation that you could do with your kids or grandkids. All you need is a computer and a phone and an internet connection, and you and your family can do this just as a daily practice wherever you are. If there is no internet connection wherever you're going, just open your Bible, <laughs> okay? And read the Bible with your people and sit in a moment of silence, talk for a little bit, behold and believe. It doesn't matter that you come here. The point is to walk every step of the way with Jesus. Could our Lord have been more clear? He is asking us to look up to see him high and lifted up on the cross, high and lifted up, risen from the dead, high and lifted up at the right hand of God the Father. And as we behold that, church indeed, even people like us are saved. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that even the wild pieces like Numbers chapter 21 are all of the same piece, even as the clear and beautiful bits like John 3.16. And God, thank you that generation after generation, century after century, uh, thank you for making it clear that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but that you are also always faithful and good and true in providing rescue and redemption and salvation. God, we need more of that. In Jesus' name, we invite you to be at work in and around us. And everybody said, amen.